Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. There's a lot of things we take for granted on this earth, and based on the stories we've been covering today, we'd better appreciate what we've got, because things are changing really fast. I recall a strange moment when I heard a bird call that was so complex, so endless, so energized, that I wondered what in the world was making all that ruckus. I traced the call to one of those common black birds we see almost everywhere. Scientists are beginning to listen to what they have to say, and it's a lot that's being discussed these days. Some birds are finally able to tell scientists what's on their minds. When your voice of the earth continues, here on the Wild Side News. This week, we've been hearing a lot of chatter about a little bird with a lot to say. Recently, there's been a, a most interesting story about communication in a bird species called the European starling, suggesting that they're able to understand greater complexity in their languaging than otherwise uh, some people would think. The main researcher joining us now from UCSD, the University of California, San Diego, is Timothy Gettner. He's the assistant professor of psychology in the neuroethology department of the psychology department. Uh, Dr. Gettner, welcome to the Wild Side News. Thank you. Well, we're going to try to understand the unique character of your, your experiment here. Briefly, give us a, a two to three sentence summary, if you can, about what it is that you, you feel you've uh, uh, defined. Well, what we've, what we've done is to take a couple of um, relatively simple sorts of patterning rules or grammars, if you will, rules that describe how sequences of sounds can be patterned. And we've used those two different rules to construct artificial starling songs and we asked the starlings to identify songs that were produced using one rule or the other rule and in uh, this case the rules have specific components to them that have uh, correlates to larger sorts of rules or grammars that humans might be using. Now that is wildly scientific. <laughs> <laughs> so let's try to understand this better. Starlings are, are prolific singers, and that's one of the reasons you chose them, was because they have such a diverse a diversity of sound, but as well they learn such a diversity. Did that factor into your decision to use the starling? Absolutely. Uh, as you uh, alluded to, they are, they are tremendous singers. They produce just a, uh, uh, an incredible amount of vocal material. And one of the things that starlings do, uh, like all songbirds, they have to learn their songs when they're very young. But unlike many species of songbirds, they continue to add new vocal material, new sounds to their repertoires as they get older and older. And so they kind of wander through the world or fly through the world, picking up all sorts of different sounds and use those new sounds that they acquire. There might be a, um, a squeaky door, a car alarm, a, uh, another sound that a, a, another starling is, is making, or it might be a, a sound that another species of bird or other animal is making, they'll take all of those sounds and they'll stick them into um, their songs and they'll produce these long patterned strings of different sounds. And so we know a lot about the, um, the structure of starling song and, and it's, it's both its length and its complexity in terms of the number of, of 
sounds it contains are very, very attractive for studying all forms of, or at least many forms of, of pattern learning. So they go through the world, they hear sounds, they go, I think I like that sound, and they literally learn to mimic it somehow magically and then add it to their repertoire. Am I right so far? You're, you're absolutely correct. And, and in starlings, as is true in, in many species of songbirds, it's really the, um, the females that are driving this desire to increase the complexity of their song. So one of the things that males want to do, one of the things they're using their song for is to attract females. And what females are interested in are older males, and the, one of the ways that they um, uh, can tell whether a male is old or not is if he has a, um, a more variable, um, oftentimes longer, song. So males are continually trying to add things to their repertoire to essentially impress females. Now, I have a cockatiel, uh, a female cockatiel, and she has a repertoire of about two sounds. Uh-huh. Um, so the thing that's very unique about the starling is the fact that their the individual may have a sound, a song, a, a song that is very specific to them. Do they tend to repeat that same song, or does it vary? Well, they might have a repertoire that um, for an adult, a mature male, could have um, maybe 50 or 60 different little sound chunks, we call them motifs, hmm. um, might have 50 or 60 motifs in it. And when he produces a single song, he'll select a subset of all the motifs that he knows. And when he produces another su- song, he'll select a slightly different subset of all the motifs that he knows. So if you look from song to song, there's actually a fair amount of overlap, and there's also a fair amount of uniqueness. Almost every song that they sing is subtly different from the one um, from anything that they produced in the past. So they can randomly intermix the various sounds, or do they have? Do they kind of take a phrase one, phrase two, phrase three? It turns out that it's not entirely random. There is some um, some patterning to it, and we've we've looked at that pattern. And other individuals use that uh, the sequencing information. Um, when they're trying to recognize different individuals. They know, oh, you're the guy that sings this, this, and this, and you put them in this particular order. Okay, let's let's help us understand now the concept of recursion, because that's the R-E-C-U-R-S-I-O-N, recursion. Tell us, first of all, what recursion is, and then how it is that you were able to uh, test for this. Well, if you look across human languages and ask the question, what is there any similar sort of patterning that human languages follow? One of the things that becomes evident is that many, many human languages use this concept of recursion. And what that means is that, um, well, it's best to get this from an example. I can say the cat has uh, gray fur and white paws. That's a perfectly reasonable sentence. I can also say the cat, my dog chases, has gray fur and white paws. That's a perfectly reasonable sentence. And what I've done is to take the phrase, my dog chases, and insert that into an already um, uh, understandable sentence. And we end up with a longer sentence, which is indeed understandable. It turns out that that insertion, that, that embedding, is common across many, many human languages. What we did was to take a very simple sort of patterning rule that requires that embedding. Um, and we used that rule to construct artificial starling songs and then asked the starlings whether they could um, recognize sequences that had been generated by that rule. Now, define uh, the, the one thing that I keep, I, I don't quite have a grasp on is this concept of the rule. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the rule, so 
what grammars essentially are are um, lists of rules that say that allow you to to say this is a um, a legitimate pattern or it is not a legitimate pattern. So if this thing is in my language or it's not in my language. And the way that, that uh, you make that distinction is by saying, does it follow this set of rules? If it follows this set of rules, then it's in the language. If it doesn't follow this set of rules, then it's not in the language. And that set of rules can be either very, very large. In the case of human language, it can have lots of, of complexity. Or it can be very, very small. And maybe there's just one rule. And the patterning uh, the grammar that we taught Starlings had only one rule. It said you can take any set of uh, Starling song motifs and embed that into another string of Starling song motifs. So the rule is you can embed in a very specific way. So so you would, for example, train Starlings to, re- to recognize a sequence of songs or sounds that would they, w- they would associate with a specific bird? Am I, am I coming close Not here? Not necessarily with a specific bird but just to recognize the sequence of sound. Okay. So imagine the simplest keyboard in the world just has a single button on it. Mm-hmm. And what we do is give starlings access to that keyboard. Mm-hmm. They're sitting in a cage, and one wall of their cage is, is made up of a panel, and that panel has a, a, a button on it. They wander up to the panel, and they press that button, and a song plays. And the, the song might last four or five seconds. And after the song completes, their task is to either, one, press that button again if it's a song that was generated by this complex rule that has this embedding property, or don't press the button if it's a song that's generated by a simpler rule that doesn't have this embedding property. So you were able to accomplish this through some sort of reward mechanism? Exactly. If they're correct, if they do what we want them to do, then we give them a little bit of food. So it's like training your dog to roll over. Mm-hmm. or training your dog to sit. You give it two different commands, and if it does what you want it to do, you give it a little reward, a little reinforcement. That's what we call that. So you would, you would create a series of sounds, and they could be very complex and varied, but as long as they followed the rule, that is, that, that, it, that it, there is an embedding of, a, of a, another sound, that was a, a recognition of recursion. That's correct. So, and that establishes the basic ability to, um, at the most fundamental level, at least distinguish between these two patterns. What we then do is start to test them with um, a whole suite of other patterns that um, other sequences that uh, that don't receive any specific reinforcement. So we teach them, okay, here's a rule, solve the, this task any way that, that uh, you can, and then we ask them essentially 20 questions. Um, did you use this sort of rule to do it? Did you use this sort of rule to do it? And what we're left with at the end, after we run all, give them all of these uh, uh, test stimuli, is a, um, a a best guess at the simplest possible solution strategy that they could have employed. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we ended up with is a, um, a a strong indication that they had, in fact, learned this complex rule. A, a good correlation in terms of their response to your your test. We can find no other way to explain their, their behavior. Mm. So, so they were able to effectively, uh, say you played 20 different songs, only one of which, I'll call them songs, mm-hmm. uh, only one of which is um, uh, uh, contains recursion. This animal was able to discern the song, at least within reasonable uh, accuracy, mm-hmm. 
uh, that did contain that recursion. Right. So we taught them these um, uh, rules, including one of which was included this recursion, and then we gave them a bunch of brand new stimuli that followed these patterns, and they were perfectly fine at, at recognizing them. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us a couple of different things. One is that it invigorates the debate between um, our understanding of human language and our understanding of what other organisms, in this case a small songbird with a brain about the size of your thumb, the end of your thumb, um, is, are, are, are capable of. And it, it narrows the gap between what humans can do and what other birds are also capable of. And it tells us, look, we have a incredibly unique and powerful way of communicating with, with one another as humans. There's no other species that has human language. It's unique. But if you start to unpack that uh, statement a little bit and say, well, what is it about human language that makes it unique? Um, what we've shown is that there's a little bit of the way that we pattern our words and, and sounds that we share with the capabilities of other organisms. They can perceive of the world in a way that's in some sense similar to the way that we perceive of the world. So they have an ability that we thought we were the only organism that had. It turns out that we're not the only organism that has that ability. It doesn't mean that starlings can learn language, human language. It doesn't mean that starlings have their own language in the sense that we think of the word. But it does mean that they're incredibly sensitive to um, uh, patterns in the world that we previous to, to this demonstration, had no sense, um, inkling that they were capable of, of understanding. People have, have advocated the concept that animals are just it's a stimulus response uh, that was fairly hardwired, and you're, you're kind of breaking that uh, hardwiring, and you're suggesting that there's a, a higher level of complexity, that, that it isn't just a simple, simple stimulus response that these uh, simpler creatures have. That's true, and, 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 and certainly we're not the first to, to, to argue that. that. That is a position that has fallen out of favor um, over the last 75 or, or 80 years, really. Thank God um, for that. What we're doing is saying is, is in many senses, uh, extending that um, uh, line of inquiry to say, well, they can learn pretty complex rules. I mean, these are simple rules. You could learn them quite easily, but um, they're still rules, and that still requires them to um, look at events in their world and abstract some higher uh, relational uh, structure from that and then apply that same relational structure to other um, uh, events when, when they encounter those. So that's a pretty complex thing that they're doing. It's at a level of complexity that... that uh, no one appreciated animals were capable of before. The second thing that, that um, comes out of this research is that now we have an animal model within which we can begin to investigate what the neural mechanisms that underlie this form of complex pattern learning might be. So we can do the sorts of neurophysiological experiments that one can't do and one shouldn't certainly do with uh, human beings and start to understand, well, how is it that the brain actually processes these sorts of structures? How do you take a collection of neurons and build a, a, a network that can understand and, and acquire patterns and then uh, employ that patterning knowledge in specific sorts of ways? And that's a, that's a significant advantage and a significant step forward in our, in our ability to understand how complex events in the world are represented in nervous systems. 
one of the great things right now is very encouraging is the fact that the state of the art in terms of neural mapping of the brain in real time is becoming uh, a powerful tool to see uh, to to understand brain function. Absolutely. Well, you know, there's a, there's much more to be said about this. Uh, if people want to find out more about your research, where should they go? Uh, they can uh, take a look at, at the paper. That's the first place I would direct people. Um, we also have a website uh, through the uh, University of California at San Diego in the psychology department, and you can just click on my name, and that will take you to the laboratory and tell you um, about the different things that we're working on. Uh, if they want to find that paper, how can they do so? Um, that is in the April 27th issue of Nature magazine. And just one personal question. Mm-hmm. You've had a very personal relationship with a number of starlings. What do you think about them one-on-one when you're sitting around on the table just talking, having a beer and, and, and talking about stuff, uh, you and starlings? Since they have such a repertoire, what, do you, what have you learned about starlings? Um, they are an amazing animal. There's, there's no doubt. Um, they are tenacious and clever and inquisitive and um, hardy, and uh, I have, every time I I conduct a study, you know, some some of the results are bigger than others, but every time I conduct a study, um, I am increasingly more and more impressed by um, the amazing ability of these tiny little creatures. Next time you're outside and you hear these incredible calls that go on and on and uh-huh. on and on and on and are filled with a matrix of sound that is most amazing, look up, you'll see a little black bird with a little gray, a greenish metallic tint, and it's very likely a starling. Absolutely. Timothy Gettner, uh, Assistant Professor of Psychology at uh, UCSD in uh, San Diego, I want to thank you so much for adding your voice here on the Wild Side News. My pleasure. It's happening around the world. It's called life. It's time we listen, really listen, before it's too late. This is Sidney Wildsmith thanking you for tuning in and inviting you to tune in each Thursday or any time on the archives when your voice of the earth reaches around the world here on the Wild Side News.